0: Here we are in our first podcast for War on the Rocks, um, this is the podcast basically where we talk about interesting things related to war and conflict over, over drinks, and we're here at the Jefferson Hotel in one of the cabinet rooms with uh, three very smart scholars from the Center for Naval Analysis Strategic Studies Center, um, Maybe we can go around and introduce, our, introduce ourselves.
1: Sure, I'm, uh, I'm Bill Rosnow, I'm a uh, senior research scientist at, uh, at CNA.
2: You have to say you're a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do no, it. No, I'm going to have to do it. I, I, I'm Will McCants. Uh, I am a research scientist at CNA where I'm s- surrounded by <laughs> and burners and beakers and whatnot. <laughs> I'm Ash on Ostevar. That's it. That's it. All right.
0: Great. And so we're going to talk about a lot of things here today. Um, first thing I'd like to talk about is Syria which has been in the news for a while now, obviously, uh, most recently because President Obama has announced he's going to support parts of the armed opposition-ish, ish, with small arms maybe, we don't know when. Ish. Um, I was recently at an event at the Center for the National Interest where Dave Kramer, who's the President of Freedom House, commented that he's, he's not someone who I often agree with, but he's someone who I agreed with on this statement. He made the point that the president basically chose the worst of all possible options um, by providing small arms. He's not going to be tipping the conflict in one direction or the other, but he's certainly going to be prolonging it and causing more deaths. Um, what do you guys
2: think about that? Mm, I mean, it, it, it depends what you identify as the core problem or the core reason that the war is being prolonged. Um, this is Will McCants, by the way, just in case I say anything awesome. <laughs> enough, you need to attribute it. Um, but I, I think you know the study Afshan and I recently worked on. We identified one of the key problems that are preventing uh, that's preventing the rebels from really posing a threat to the Assad regime um, and uh, changing Assad's political calculus is the fact that there isn't any centralized distribution of arms through the uh, Free Syrian Army and that the supreme military council has been basically without a a real um reliable sponsor and that you've had the saudis funding one part of the free syrian army the Qataris funding another you've had a lot of private money that's been flowing into the conflict particularly from private citizens in the gulf who have been sending the money to the salafis and it has kept the opposition fractured. And not having a reliable flow of weapons, regardless of whether they're heavy or light, has meant that all of these factions don't have to join together. They don't have to go uh, suckle on one teat. They have many little little
3: <laughs> teats.
2: Just, just for the record, it, yeah. took, oh, sorry. it took less than five minutes yeah, for Will McCants no, to a use the word sack teats. I didn't want to go there. <laughs> um, but but. Um, So I think, you know, in in the Obama administration's rationale of of pushing weapons to the Supreme Military Council um, is a good one, if they want to unify the opposition. Um, Obviously, heavier weapons will have to be involved, but but where I differ from the person uh, you mentioned uh, is that... The, the notion that there's no heavy weapons being supplied. I mean, it doesn't seem that the United States is doing it, but they certainly seem to have given the nod to Saudi Arabia from everything that's been reported. So okay. I, I think heavy weapons are flowing in.
1: I don't know if I'm allowed to ask questions. This is Bill Rose now. But I, I, I want to ask you a question. Um, two questions, if, if I may. And I'm, I'm, I'm not an uh, uh, area expert by any means, so I, I defer to, 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 to Will and Afshan on this. So these, these are really sincere. Two is, sincere questions. Is
0: modesty required? No, not at all. Okay.
1: okay. Not at all. But, modesty but, is but very much
0: appreciated.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, one is uh, do we have the, um, the confidence in our granular knowledge of events on the ground and politics, factions, motivations to be able to decide, you know, winners and losers, who, who we should support? And second of all, the consideration I mean, I, I'm just thinking about Iraq, and I say this as an amateur again you know, the knock-on effects, right? I mean, where, like, looking two, three, four years down the road, looking post-Assad, looking, looking at all these, I mean, are, are, we, are we confident that the end of the Assad regime is actually um, in the U.S. national interest?
2: Why, on, on the first issue, i can handle the second one. On the first issue, um, I, I don't think the administration necessarily has to pick winners and losers. What they're trying to do is establish some sort of formal mechanism for the distribution of arms that will in turn build up this proto-army if uh, if Asada falls or if there is a, a, a parallel state that is set up. And, so, and the distribution of weapons from the top is key to the creation of, of this new... Of this new military, and you know, the, the, your point's well taken about knock-on effects. But the problem has been that, by virtue of the United States sitting back, um, we have uh, engendered uh, a, a, a lot of uh, disarray among the rebel forces. Because, really, I mean, as we I, I, I think has been shown that the United States sitting back has has led to um, all of the different regional powers pulling in different directions, and I think us coming into it gives it some more coherency, and I, and I think that is positive if we wish to affect Assad's uh, outlook, um, and I don't necessarily think it means, you know, giving arms to the worst factions, and I'm, you know, after two years of this conflict, I think the CIA has a better idea of of uh, of where the weapons should be going. And of course, there's going to be unforeseen um, uh, outcomes, but it was already getting pretty bad with us sitting back anyway. So I think I think I guess my point is that it's better for us to try and bend the curve a little bit more in a positive direction, or at least the way we would like to see things turn out rather than us holding back. But well, do you really,
0: and I'll, I'll, I'll get to you, I'll show in one second, but do you really think the distribution of small arms is the way to do that? Because as you noted, other countries are giving heavier weapons, right? And um, just sending a few AKs and maybe some light machine guns change the
2: balance, or how do you affect
0: the this? These divisions within the
2: I don't think. I think the. I think the big thing that they're that they will send. I, I have no inside knowledge, but my sense, ammunition is a huge, huge need. It's not just the, the, the ammo. I mean, they go through millions of rounds quickly, and that's that's really key. The guys who are who are dis- uh, distributing the ammo really, you know, it 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 plays a lot into uh, command and control. You know, the guys who are distributing the bullets also get a say. Somewhat in in uh, in operations and and, and how um, the, those munitions are are being used, and they can cut off groups that are you know going outside of that. I don't know if Ashon, you'd have a different take on it.
3: No, I I would assume that it's it's not just going to be a trickle of small arms because uh, I, I, I don't think that that would do much. Uh, what what they need to do and what the problem is right now is that the the center of the rebellion, the, the strongest part of the rebellion, is the Salafis and the Jihadists right now. And the only way to, to break off the small groups that adhere to the Salafists and the Jihadists, because the Jihadists have more credibility on the ground, because they're more effective, they're better trained, uh, they're better funded oftentimes, um, and they're often better armed, and can use those arms more effectively, the only way to break off those satellites and create a stronger opposition is, to in effect, get them more arms, make sure those arms are distributed more effectively from a central distribution center, uh, and not hoarded by by commanders and generals at the border, which is what we see now. If they can do that, then they could start they could start to turn the tide uh, of the center of the rebellion. You, you mentioned
0: by commanders and generals at the border, what does that tell us about how the rebellion is structured? Is there a hierarchical chain of command, or are we talking? Are we really talking about groups and generals and commanders with their own areas of operation that only sometimes work with one another? I
3: mean, yeah, I think we're talking about a very diverse, very diffuse rebellion. Okay. You know, uh, and I think it's you have to find some mechanisms to get them to cohere, and arming them. Giving them resources, making sure one camp Through has more, central mechanism exactly making sure one camp has more resources than another. I think will start attracting the smaller groups.
1: So, but Afshan, is it is it our it's sort of a two part question? Is it our policy uh, to to encourage? Yeah, I, I assume yeah. encourage the end of the Assad regime. But the, the more interesting question is: is it actually yeah. in our interest? ultimately, the U.S. national interest to have Assad gone. So sort of looking out two, three, four years, however long this hideous civil war is going to go on for, do you think it's in our, our national interest to have him out?
3: Well, I'll say this. I think it's in everybody's interest for the civil war to end as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to find an end to that civil war, I think, is important. If we can do something to that effect, I think would be good. Uh, whether this is that initiative, I don't know.
0: Well, before the civil war got as terrible as it as, as it has gotten, where I think civilians are now being killed twice as fast as they were in Bosnia, um, before it was clear this is where we were heading. President Obama chose to come out and say that the fall, the downfall of Assad, is inevitable. And so, I guess my next question for for all of you is, uh, is that the case? And to was that a smart thing for the president to say when he said it?
3: Well, I think without without having a... And I should say, none of their statements
0: represent yeah. the yeah. opinions or positions of the U.S. government. And the Department of Defense is a yeah. former employer. Employers. employer. Employers. Yeah. yeah. This These is are... just their own personal
2: scholarly. And we may change our minds in yeah. the morning. Yeah, probably will, actually. <laughs> or after the next
0: next out. drink. Although just Will and I are drinking. Or <laughs> Bill and I are drinking.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on. Uh, well, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? But... I, I think if you're ever going to have a policy like that, you're going to have to have you're going to have to have something behind that policy. Um, and just saying that Assad had to go without without on the other hand doing something to make him leave, I think has proved to be uh, how to put this uh, diplomatically. I don't think it's worked out very well. You know, I think it put us in a box. Um, I understand sort of the, the sentiments behind it why we we want him to go and also why I think why we didn't want to jump into it. Um, but on the other hand if you say somebody has to go you give the rebellion. To- well, I'm that- about that. That was Rosenau. <laughs> I could neither yeah. confirm nor deny
2: if in your social scientist on the, on the
0: table. was <laughs> on the verge of a oh. very profound statement.
3: <laughs> go on. I'm, I was obviously wrong. Uh, no, I, uh, you know, I, I, I think it it uh, it was a policy that, that made it difficult for us to do anything, um, you know,
0: um, <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not. No, I, I think I think you're right. I think it did box us in. But uh, Mark Lynch, I watched this really interesting debate between Mark Lynch and Andrew Talbot at um, Washington mm-hmm. Stuferney's policy. And Mark Lynch is not actually someone who I agree with very often when it comes to Middle East issues, but I think he was making some really good points in this debate, and one of the things he said is this assumption is that um, our support, our military support of the rebels will balance, balance out uh, the opposition, balance out the conflict is perhaps mistaken. All this might lead to is increased involvement by Iran and Hezbollah because there's no evidence that they're tapped out. And that they couldn't escalate their own involvement. What do you what do you think about that? And what do you think about Iran's interest in this conflict more broadly? Well, I, I think
3: on the one hand, you would hate for it to balance the conflict because if it balances the conflict, all that means is that they'll just be killing each other equally effectively. Uh, I think you want an imbalance in the conflict uh, on the side that you're that you're supporting. But Iran can only get involved so much, you know, without overtly invading Syria um, so I don't I don't know how much more they can get involved and frankly I don't know how much more hezbollah can get involved without completely in abandoning their foothold in Lebanon I mean you know they open themselves up to to what's going on in lebanon right now if lebanon starts falling apart and most of their attention is in Syria you know they're gonna have they're gonna have two flanks that they're going to be fighting and I I don't know is um, it crazy to think is it is it totally
0: and i'm not an iran expert but is it totally um unreasonable to think that iran would overtly send troops into syria there already are rumors that there yeah, are iranian the, troops operating I, I, i'm sure
3: that they, they would send folks in but i mean would they send the the mass ground forces that you would expect uh for them to actually turn the tide that i don't think they would do but sure i think they would put their special forces in they would put sort of uh, certain elements of the IRGC or the Bass Siege or uh, intelligence, uh, but I don't know how much more robust they can they can make that effort. Okay, they could. I don't know, but I would be surprised to see that.
0: All right. Well, um, let's move on to an, uh, our next topic. Will or Bill? Sorry, I keep doing <laughs> that. Bill Rhodes now. You ordered a specific kind of martini. Let's hear about that.
1: Well, I did, yeah. And uh, w- we are at the Jefferson Hotel in, in Washington. Uh, really one of my favorites. Uh, this is uh, yeah. totally charming locale. More important, they have Plymouth Gin, which allows me to have a Plymouth martini. What got me interested in Plymouth martinis? And there, there's a vague connection, I think, to Jefferson, Independence Day, and the Pilgrims. <laughs> the people who started, who revived the brand, <clears throat> there are a bunch of English merchant bankers who were bored with being merchant bankers, so they revived this brand, Plymouth Gin, about, you know, 15 years ago, down in Plymouth, there was a Plymouth style of gin, they use an 18th century copper still, and what's fascinating is, they brew up this stuff in a building that was a former monastery that had been confiscated under Henry VIII, you know, dissolution of the monasteries. It was a it was a way station. It was the last place la, that the pilgrims spent their last night in England, at Plymouth, in the building that is now the distillery. Huh. So I got into this on Thanksgiving, right? Of all occasions, right? Pilgrims. What am I going to have for Thanksgiving? People want me to bring an appetizer. I bring Plymouth martinis, right. <laughs> so it's a, I, I, I think, a, I would say almost a patriotic uh, calling. It is. And this time of year, we're just a few days away from uh, Independence Day, so uh, hence the Plymouth Martini. That's great. Marquis.
0: I actually um, have been to Plymouth, England. I was at a regimental dinner um, with 30 commando Royal Marines who I worked with in Afghanistan, and I was being taken around town by a uh, officer friend of mine, Rosie. And she took me to Plymouth Harbor, where the pilgrims actually took, took off from. And there's reclaimed land in the harbor. And so the actual spot that they have marked is not the actual spot where they took off from. Uh, and so I went to go to the actual spot where they took off from, which is apparently underneath a pub. And so I went into this pub thinking they'd surely have some sort of monument there. Um, not only did they not have a monument, but they managed to build a women's bathroom. Right over the actual spot.
3: Well, a type of monument.
1: Yeah, a type of monument <laughs> from over the spot where the pilgrims took off from. Well, and, and you know, I, I, I'm sure the, um, the English were happy to see the backside of these <laughs> religious fundamentalists, these fanatics, people for whom Puritanism wasn't enough. No, no, mm-hmm. no we actually have to get out of this, uh, you know, nest of infidels and, and, and float across the ocean to Holland and to the, the New World. And start a city on a hill. On. Mm-hmm. Let's be nice to the Anabaptists. That's true.
0: So, but, so, speaking of morality, let's, let's move on to Snowden, everyone's uh, least favorite leaker. Um, some people like him. Some people do like <laughs> him. I did see a poll recently that said that uh, most Americans under the age, in their 20s or something like that, thought he was a hero rather than a villain. Uh, all those people that work in the national security industry, um, broadly speaking, what are your own personal thoughts and opinions on what what Snowden did and what the implications of this are. Do you want to
1: get started, Bill? I'll, I'll, uh, <clears throat> I'll wade in. I mean, it's... Uh, in some ways, it's worse than, than WikiLeaks, right? What this, what this guy um, was able to, to, to obtain, apparently through a thumb drive, which I don't know about any of you, but we go into any kind of secure facility anywhere in the, in the free world, they're confiscating phones, or confiscating iPads. Somehow this guy was able to, not that long ago, <clears throat> walk out. I, I, I would say, I mean, his crimes are, are, are obvious. Um, what I find a little bit disturbing is you wonder, well, if there's this Snowden guy, yeah. there are going to be many others. There have to be. If it is, in fact, a kind of a generational thing, information must be free. That kind of thing. And then one wonders about our own um, security apparatus that allowed, <laughs> yes, I know he's a bad apple and he was able to, you know, you, you can't weed out all the bad apples. But clearly, I mean, he was working in a very secure facility and was able to, basically with impunity, um, <laughs> get hired, <laughs> go in there, steal this stuff, which is of probably inestimable Value to, to some people and uh, and wonder out. so I, I I'm normally I you know I consider myself m- more on the uh, libertarian side of the spectrum but uh, this guy and I, I I suppose it's his own it's his own um, personality which is partly doing him in I mean well he's, he's not, clearly an egoist yeah he's not doing he's not doing himself any favors but I have to say the only other thing I'd say about this is that. Um, and, and many other people have made this point, but, you know, for the United States to put itself in the position of, um, of, of, of almost uh, impotence, right, by making this guy out, at the same time, I mean, it could have been handled a lot differently, let's put it that way. This guy, <clears throat> instead of being the sort of national devil figure, um, you know, that, that seems to show the United States is almost a, a, a second-rate power. Right. The whole thing could have been downplayed. It could have been done much more quietly. He probably could have been apprehended, I think. But instead, um, you know, the U.S. government decided to make a a massive, not just federal case, but sort of global case. You don't think they've been pretty muted, Bill? I mean, I think I think
2: I think the media has been flipping out, but the administration seems to have been pretty muted in its response. Well, I, I mean, Obama, Obama barely addressed it. But he, he
1: talked about. I mean, the president talked about him personally. Yeah. Talked about Snowden personally, as as you know, and and I I, I think that was, I think that was a mistake. I mean, I think the opportunities for maybe apprehending him are, are, are gone. But I I, I didn't. I, I thought that the, the government's approach was I don't know a little bit hysterical. I think at times. Mm. Well, certainly. Um... On the Sunday shows
0: last weekend, or maybe it was the weekend before, you had Senator Schumer uh, going on and making some pretty pointed remarks. Uh, My my favorite was when he went and said about Russia, this isn't what allies do to each other, as if Russia (laughs)
1: was an ally. Um, Or as the uh, Romney partisans have said, look, see, this this proves, yeah, Russia is the number one enemy, right?
0: Russia is clearly a a competitor, as if we wouldn't do the same thing if the situation was reversed. And we should do the same thing. This is what great powers do, is my opinion. I mean, what do you think about that, Afshan? I mean, who, has, who has bread, I mean bread, and, bread and cheese, and cheese in moment. his mouth right now? No.
2: Go ahead, Will. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I find it a little <clears throat> a little funny that Europe isn't up in arms, that the United States is, is spying on it. Um, you think it's funny that they're angry about that? Yeah. Because, yes. well, because they, they routinely spy on us, particularly in the realm of, of, uh, of corporate secrets. Right. You know, there, there is a, 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 they have a... Oh, the,
1: the, 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 the episode in the uh, French hotel room. Yeah.
2: Like
0: the, I
1: don't know, Boeing, Boeing official. Could you tell
0: our, our listeners what, what happened there? Because I'm, I'm not familiar I mean, with This I mean,
1: this is a number of years ago that, 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 the, that the French were basically, and, and they are a close ally. I'm not busting on them. I mean, they're just operating what they think is their national interest, but it turns out that they were doing this kind of commercial espionage against, uh, you know, U.S. aerospace executives in Paris hotel rooms, and, and you know, as, as, as Will McCann said, yeah, we're, we're pretending to be kind of, the, the Europeans are pretending to be sort of shocked and horrified by this, but at the end of the day, isn't this what, what all states do? Yeah, they I mean,
2: couldn't. to me, the, the, the thing that frustrates me most about this story is that the people who are celebrating Snowden how flippant they are about congressional oversight. You know, I mean, this, this, this was a uh, intelligence apparatus that was that was approved by Congress, was regularly briefed to Congress, has oversight from the legislative branch, has oversight from the judicial branch, they have safeguards put in place we may not be privy to all the safeguards, but that's part of it being a secret program. I'm not entirely against the notion of whistleblowing if someone sees something horribly wrong, but you come out, you blow the whistle, and then you pay the price. Right. I mean, that's 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 how you know the the whistleblowing is supposed to work. You don't just jump ship, go s- start talking to America's you know. Uh, biggest enemies and and start handing out its state secrets just because you want to protect yourself or in the name of, of, uh, of, of liberty. And I think it really discredits his in- entire cause. And I, and I think it just causes the intelligence community to close ranks. I don't think it opens the system up. I think they're going to be even more careful in the future to make sure that the Snowden type does not get hired. And so we may never know these kind of things. You know, I don't have a problem with people like Senator Wyden who were, you know, pressing to have this kind of information released. I question some of his tactics, but, you know, his heart is in the right place. And, you know, someone could have blown the whistle and, and paid the price and you know, I, I may not have necessarily agreed with that either, because I think it's a sacred trust protecting these kind of documents. Um, but nevertheless, you know, you could sort of see a moral logic at work, and it's a discussion worth having in the Ameri- uh, among Americans. But, you know, just going abroad to China and then to Russia and spilling all of our secrets, I think greatly discredits the cause and going to do far more damage than good. I mean, it's already destroyed public trust, right? So uh, uh, that's irrevocable. It doesn't matter how many nuances come out, how wrong the initial story was. The initial story was very wrong. And on top of that, um, you're going to have an administration and a security apparatus that is going to get even more tight-lipped.
1: So it will be even harder to find out about these things in the future. Can, can I ask you one question about this, though? Don't, isn't it the case, uh, though, the administration has been in such a, e- even beyond its predecessor, the Bush administration, right? it has been in such a secretive mode from, from day one, couldn't the administration have done more to to say, I mean, if it's true that the millennials and everybody else thinks, oh yeah, well, I'm communicating through Gmail or Skype or whatever, and I assume people are listening in. Couldn't they have done more to basically inform the American people, yes, I understand. There's judicial oversight, the FISA court, which has its own problems, which is a secret court, you know, the members of the intelligence committee obviously briefed, other members of Congress, you know, somewhat lackadaisical in many cases, had to leave their office go up to the secure room in the Capitol and, and get the briefing. Not many did that and now they're howling. But I think I think the administration could have done a lot more early on to distance itself from the most extreme interpretations of what's going on and, and to inform the American people. I mean, we've got to have a balance, right? It can't be all government. The government can't, can't all the cards can't be in favor of the government, right? I mean, we do need some kind of public information, and unfortunately, if it weren't for, well, Snowden, we're we're not going to, he's, I agree with you, he's not a whistleblower, but there have been whistleblowers um, with earlier programs, and this is a, really, it's been going on since the Bush administration and Admiral Poindexter. Right, and, and total it, information awareness. Right. That but was, it, 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 if explored. this had
2: been the leak about one program, I could see that happening. But you can imagine, you know, at the national security staff level, they're just—they have to be in siege mode. I mean, mm-hmm. they have—I mean, how many documents did Snowden leave with, and how compromised? Well, so we don't so know. It was, it was on his like, hard
1: drives that right. gave right. to the Chinese? I mean, you could right. be—you could be worse than right. Than, so my—I I would just yeah. suspect yeah.
2: that I, they are just in well, complete that leads siege.
0: That leads me to my next question. You brought up the original story, and I'd like to ask all three of you: what, what, if any, what is the difference between Glenn Greenwald and Julian Assange? Is there a, a, a substantive difference between their approach to these sorts of things and what they're what they're trying to achieve? It's a loaded question, I know, and I know Glenn Greenwald has lots of angry fans on Twitter that have got after Will McCants before,
2: but I know Will's not scared of them. <laughs> Yeah I I guess I'll speak to it. I mean I, I was bothered early on to see Glenn say that you know this guy came to Glenn because he knew how Glenn would use this information and it just seems to me whether you're a journalist or a scholar no one should ever be able to predict how you are going to use information because that makes you a tool that makes you someone's tool. And I'm, I'm not uh, Pollyannish, I, I don't believe that there's some, you know, notion of objectivity that everybody can adhere to all the time. But at least you make an attempt and the fact that you are being a willing vessel uh, for a certain message, uh, and that when you have been called on uh, uh, your biases repeatedly, which, which Greenwald has been over the past two weeks or so that he has really shaded this story in ways that the that the
1: material does not in ways that he warrant. must have understood well, as an attorney it, yeah it, it did appear in the Guardian right? <clears throat> I mean the British are maybe a little more sophisticated in the sense that they realize that different papers have different agendas and different opinions and so therefore we're not surprised that the Guardian would take this stance or, or the telegraph you know <clears throat> would be supporting the conservative party
3: right well I mean in short there's not a big difference between the two they're both just leaking these,
2: these you mean Assange right? and yeah
3: Greenwald. and they're doing it for the same <clears throat> political and ideological reasons all right next
0: topic dun, dun, dun. <laughs> all right let's move on to terrorism um there was an interesting article recently that was in the um, Chronicle of Higher Education and I should say that all three of our guests here actually including your host um, we all share the common thread that we all study and have published about terrorism uh, in the past and in the present. So uh, this article in the Chronicle talked about how hard it is to get taken seriously as an academic in terms of tenure-track jobs when you're studying and writing about terrorism, and it featured two very uh, intelligent scholars. One was Greg Johnson, who I think is finishing or has finished his PhD, what, at Princeton? Finishing. Mm-hmm. And Thomas Hedjamer, who's been a, a huge inspiration on my own work, particularly his application of social movement theory in Saudi Arabia, um, and how they're having a lot of trouble getting these tenure-track jobs at universities. Um, as people that, as academics, as PhDs that have all published about terrorism, what do you think about this?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, this is Will. I mean, I, I think, um, in case he says something awesome, yeah, that's yeah. right, mm-hmm. just, just in case. <laughs> if he doesn't, it's Afshan. <laughs> <laughs> or Bill. Yeah, or Bill. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think there's, there's two levels we can talk about this. We can talk about Middle East studies, um, uh, which Afshan and I can speak to more, and and its relationship to terrorism studies. And I think Bill, maybe you could address terrorism studies to in general, particularly in. History or political science, where it has a bit more of a home, but it's mm-hmm. it's still not a great fit. So in in Middle East studies, um, I'll just say from my from my own perspective, um, uh, it, it it if you if you decide that you want to study a terrorist group, and particularly one that is on uh, the shit list of the United States, we we can curse on this the is a family. family show, <laughs> family show. <laughs> sorry, sorry, on the, on the on the, <laughs> the poo <poo-poo> list. <laughs> of the United States, um, you will have a very difficult time uh, getting a job in academia in the field of of Middle East studies because generally the the field is, is left of center um afshan's <laughs> laughing because that's a euphemism um it's very left of center. Can, can it see the center <laughs> everson site Ever it's, side? Yeah. Can, it's
3: the, can it even, you know what the, I, the center is the extreme right, <laughs> right, right yeah um
2: but no i mean i i think there's a lot of particularly folks from our generation you know there's a lot of people that probably be more more centrist or god forbid a moderate republican in, in middle east studies but it is generally the general feeling is that if you publish on an organization like al-qaeda it's really the kiss of death for your career because you are seen to be a handmaiden of empire if if you if you work on a middle east terrorist group that you are just ratifying uh, the worst about the Middle East, and you are justifying uh, the the U.S. need to dominate the region. This is this is how it's perceived. And you know, if you talk about it with your friends and you express an interest, you know, I kind of like to work on Al Qaeda or, in Ashan's case, the uh, uh, the IRGC in Iran. It's it they really they'll suck their teeth and they'll feel bad for you and they'll say, see you later. You know, we we really like you as a person, but they just something morally is, is wrong with you. And it's, and it's strange right Ashram? because, because there's a ton of undergrads that want courses on this.
3: Yeah. Right. I think the real irony is that the people who study the things that, that put most of the students in those general Middle East courses, uh, tend to not get the jobs to teach those courses. They'd rather hire somebody who teaches, or who, who researches a topic that might be fascinating, but is completely... Post-colonial
0: gender identity? Yeah,
3: whatever. I mean, it could be, it could be great. But, it, you know, it, it can't explain well, you know, those, those topics that, you know, current conflicts, contemporary politics, political Islam, whatever it is, that, that most people that don't know the Middle East become interested in the Middle East because of these questions. And it's great, we need to have those people that study those things. But, but it doesn't mean that they're the best teachers for this stuff. And so you would think that there would be some space in academia for the people that actually study this stuff and who can teach it well and who can write on it competently. I think there's two real problems in Middle East studies regarding this stuff. I think one, as Will got at, I think these topics are just anathema for political reasons, for moral reasons, for ethical reasons, for reasons of uh, anti-imperialism. Uh, they don't like the idea of studying militant groups, terrorist groups, violent groups, from an angle that's trying to understand them critically, as opposed to an angle that's trying to, de- to understand their context post-colonially or culturally, or in some other way that, that really sort of um, uh, diffuses the, the, the violence or, or somehow uh, yeah. Makes up for They it. would rather see them as a function of U.S. imperialism rather than... Yeah, or a product yes. of... Yeah. What a happened to the idea yeah. of value-neutral scholarship in Middle East studies? Wow, that's a whole nother issue. <laughs> but the other thing that I think, and I think this is a real problem, is is policy-oriented scholarship. Yeah, right. And I think if you have... If your scholarship is policy-oriented, and, and I think for Will and I it's that case, where you're not just writing on these groups or whatever, these issues that they find distasteful but you you're writing on it because you want to engage not just with academia but also with the public sphere with with governments with with public intellectuals um, and, and policymakers you know sort of more broadly for whatever reason this makes the field very uncomfortable now there are certain exceptions to this if you are interested in policy that is radical policy grassroots politics Uh, working-class politics, gender politics, social justice politics, you can definitely get involved in policy. But if you are interested in policy that is state-centric, that is something, especially in America, that they find problematic. And I think it's those two things, um, the topic, but also the policy orientation of the work that really uh, torpedoes careers like, like Greg and Thomas you know, mine, Will's. <laughs> uh, anybody who wants to still be part of academia, as I think most of us do, but are pushed out to the outside. And the policy question also gets, uh, not just if your scholarship is aimed at policy, but if you've done any work in the policy field, you've basically burned your bridge with, with, the, uh, with the field. Yeah,
1: right. Um, <clears throat> I just want to say a few things about what um, Will and Ashon have, have said. I mean, one of which and we've talked about this before. Um, there are plenty of academics that we know that would be, you know, all too happy to accept the the honorarium for the appearance at the government-funded, you know, seminar of experts on, you know, Eritrea, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, or whatever. So this 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 sense of, um, you know, this 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 supposed outrage at, at, at you know, government sponsorship yeah. <clears throat> compromise of scholarship is. You know, somewhat, um, I think overstated. The, but the other thing is, I, you know, just listening to what you just you, you, you said, I mean, people in the <clears> field, <throat> the mainstream part of Middle Eastern studies, um, may have a point with terrorism, and this goes to this broader question of terrorism studies. And the point is, is that it, it it's true, and we've all discussed this before, where terrorism has somehow. Post 9/11, been confined. Well, it didn't exist before 9/11. It has no history. It has no history out of South, uh, out of the context of South Asia and the Middle East. And try to do some even government-funded work on domestic terrorism. You know, the, the long history, the 150 years of, of of serious terrorism in the United States, yeah. Western Europe, not related Otherwise, to Islamism, not at all. related to Islamism. And and this is a real weakness of the field. I would blame this if we can even call it a field or a discipline of terrorism studies. In that, they are so amenable to these shifting currents of policy that their ability to do any kind of real scholarship—I mean, with a few exceptions—I'm—I'm going to, you know, shout out to like old timers like Walter Leker or Bruce Hoffman is not exactly an old timer, but uh, <laughs> super old. Super old. <laughs> Uh, you know, you know Jay <laughs> boyer Bell, the late Jay boyer Bell, who who at least could great scholarship, great scholarship, and basically invented the field, and was, you know, spent time with terrorist groups, spent time with extremists, um, some in the Middle East, but some, you know, in the case of Bell, um, in Northern Ireland, where he made his his real bones. So oh, one I of his great I, books was on Jewish terrorists as well. That's right, yeah. and and uh, so I mean, part of this is um, I think a uh, I think part of the criticism, unintentionally, is correct that that Middle Eastern studies scholars would make. Um, but the real weakness is in this this you know field of of, of terrorism studies, which I know some people claim. Well, it's under theorized. I'm a historian by training, so I'm not sure what under theorized means. But I guess it's bad, you know, to be under theorized. It's all narrative. <laughs> it's all narrative. Yeah, narrative. But. Uh, you know the fact that that, that terrorism specialists themselves, post 9/11, are confining their inquiries almost exclusively to the Middle East and South Asia.
2: But don't you think there's more more of a home for it in political
1: science, Bill, than than anywhere else? Uh, probably. I mean, and and you could you could, well, we'll just, you, so, could, you, so, could you could actually test this idea, right, by looking at. You know, journal publications, yeah. you know, APSA, International Security. I Wister. just tested
3: it. Yeah, there's a much more home for <laughs> yeah. political science. But stuff. also just to qualify that, Bill, as
0: a historian, doesn't think political science is a real discipline. I agree with but I, have, I, I do have,
1: a, <laughs> have an A-B have in political science. <laughs> All right. So I'm, I'm, I, was, I was exposed at Columbia as a impressionable youth <laughs> <laughs> to, 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 to political science and some some raw form. But no, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's probably a testament to, it's probably a credit to political science that, that they're willing to consider this. And maybe that's because political science historically has had this, I mean, even the most, um, you know, abstract parts of the field, I think, see public policy in some general way as part of the thing they want to influence, right? I mean, maybe it's a little... A little more secular than Middle Eastern studies, in that policy, at least in the uh, American tradition of political science, is kind of built into the built into the discipline much mm-hmm. more so than I think in other fields. Yeah.
0: All right, that's great. I think um, I think we should move on to the next topic. <laughs> uh, we were talking a little bit about the D.C. job market, at think tanks earlier, and the whole what would you call the, the adjunct. Oh, racket, I yeah, believe yeah, was your word. Racket,
1: ghetto.
0: <laughs> well, you've all done you've all done adjunct teaching before. Yeah. Uh, since we're in this beautiful environment, but let me just describe the room. Uh, it's this beautiful room in the lobby of the Jefferson Hotel. It's one of the cabinet rooms, which you can reserve, and there's these books on the wall. They're real books. I have no idea what's in them, but there's real books, not designer books, which is apparently a big thing now. And I first discovered this room... Um, by accident, I got invited to an AEI event, which uh, is not a place I expected to be invited to for dinner. But it was very nice, and it was a wonderful event, and it was very interesting, and I'm walking here. As, as we used to do in London, after a Think Tank event, you go to the pub, have a few drinks. So I'm walking with Elliot Cohen and, and Tom Donnelly, and we're walking down the street, down L Street. And uh, we come around the corner and come in here, and Elliot Cohen's talking about his next book, which is apparently on diplomacy. And I'm just about to walk into this very room where we're sitting right now, and he says, uh, Tom Donnelly says to me, he goes, I'm sorry, but I have to ask you to leave because we're about to have a Romney campaign meeting.
3: <laughs>
0: and I said, I'm going to get in that room eventually, and here I am. <laughs> here I am. But let's talk about the D.C. job market of think tanks and organizations like CNA. and uh, Let's not talk about CNA. Or, or not CNA specifically. We should leave them out of this. Uh, well, what, what do you want Just how it's gotten much tougher, and a lot of people are being asked to do a lot more work for less.
3: Yeah, I, I think it's tough. I, you know, most think tanks are dependent on funding, and a lot of the funding is coming from the government, and a lot of that government funding is is shrinking up right now. So, I think the market in general is is becoming constrained. It's going to become tighter. I think positions are going to start, you know, gradually uh, disappearing or degrading. Um, in uh in in sort of what they offer. Uh and I think that's gonna be across the board. So it's it's not um, what bullish? I'm not bullish on, on the market. Bearish. 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 I'm bullish. bullish. I'm bullish. I'm I'm bullish. bullish. He You're is bullish. He is bearish. You're, bearish. You're bearish. I'm bearish. Yeah. So you were right. None of You're us not studied right in the beginning. Okay.
0: It's a good thing we never moved <laughs> Yeah, <anymore. laughs> V and back again. Oh. All uh, the smart people in our college classes
3: <laughs> went to a credit lease <laughs> to yeah. Lehman Brothers. Well, not Lehman, I guess. Yeah. I'm, I'm also a historian, so I, I think I get a pass on this stuff. Uh, yeah, but I, I think it's a problem. I think, you know, a larger part of that problem is that you know, D.C. has an industry of producing graduate students that, that get degrees um, that are oriented towards D.C. work. And I think the unfortunate reality is there's just going to be a lot less of that work uh, that pays well enough for them to be able to afford and to live in the city uh, going forward. Do do you think
1: this is true? I mean, we're we're talking about sort of national security related uh, think tankery. But do you think this is true in the broader world of think tanks? Because I think, I think. Is we there a broader of...
3: world of think tanks? Yeah,
1: I mean, in the sense that that you know, people are cons- their think tanks that you know consider health policy yeah. and uh, the environment and transportation and lots of other things. Which, I mean, they may be they may be robust. I mean, the 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 demand for people who can actually do policy analysis outside of the national security area that, might be. That's
3: true, but if it's government money, I assume all of that is going to be cut. I, mean, I have no insight well, whatsoever. Say, in those I, other areas. As a think tank employee
0: and uh, that's worked at three or four different think tanks, actually. There is there is money from the government, but not as much as you'd expect. A lot of it comes from foundations, philanthropists. But I think the larger issue is, is we all study security issues, foreign policy, and I think people that donate money, and similar to the government. The government just has less money. Philanthropists are in foundations, just less interested in the issues that we study. Yeah. We just finished a very unique decade where that followed 9-11, yeah. which changed everything and how this is. I mean, I'm in this job because of 9-11, not at a, you know, for just by an accident of circumstances, and I think it might be the same for all of you, Um, the money there is just dried up, both government and non-government. Yeah, I think so.
1: So we have to make an honest living from now on? Oh, I hope not, (laughs) I hope not.
0: I would like to also point out that Will and Bill are both wearing pink shirts. Hey, yes.
1: We're confident enough
0: in our masculinity (laughs) to be able to. And gentlemen, I I hope you're all gonna be joining us for our, our launch party on the 12th of July. Is there a launch party? There is a launch party.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: Great. Definitely. We'll right. be in Oregon.
3: <laughs> in can you Skype in? Uh, we'll, we'll
0: <laughs> I think we we'll leave we'll, the 12 We'll video conference you in. Yeah. <laughs> that would be wonderful. <laughs> great. Well, thanks for doing this, guys. This is a great inaugural podcast. I If we can do this again sometime, I'm out of Woodford Reserve, which means we need to end this interview and get more drinks. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody.